Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and sorry for the uh, false start, but uh, Dinosat was fighting me, fighting me tooth and nail and wouldn't shut up <laughs> with the automatic. But uh, thanks very much for the wonderful uh, show by uh, uh, Rebecca on Stick Together. Uh, just a reminder that there's a few things that uh, uh, the station's doing very well in its uh, radiothon, so we have to thank you, the listener, for your kind regards. Uh, we've still got a little bit to go and Solidarity Breakfast and Stick Together are a little bit shamefaced. We haven't filled our total, so hopefully if there's any listeners out there who uh, regard us highly, then uh, throwing us a little bit of coin would be great. Um, today we are going to follow on a little bit from uh, Rebecca's Stick Together, her uh, really interesting interview with Dave Kerrin from Earthworker. Uh, he was actually down at the... Uh, uh, rally for Peace at uh, Vic Market last Saturday, uh, uh, July the 3rd, and um, but he was joined by a variety of other people and we were all sitting there at the corner of uh, Victoria Street and uh, Elizabeth Street in the windy, windy uh, Melbourne, uh, but lots of interesting conversation and I've got a few uh, excerpts from that particular uh, event Today, uh, we're also going to uh, hear about a film called Cry the Trees, which is going to take us to west, southwest of Western Australia, and uh, what's going on there for the Cary and uh, Jarrah trees. Um, we're going to uh, hear from Kevin. Yay, Kevin's back. Finally, uh, MBN decided that it would actually pull its finger out and fix his phone. And uh, we also went to the rally at the Karinga Way held by the um, MUA uh, in solidarity with the uh, Switzer workers who lost their jobs in Geelong. There was a 12-hour stoppage at the Melbourne Web Dock spits a, a outlet, and uh, there's uh, quite a fighting, some fighting speeches going on uh, in relation to an ongoing dispute, which is going to go national with Christy Kane, the uh, new uh, national secretary of the CFMMEU, giving a rousing speech. A bit of a fruity. There's a couple of fruity uh, elements to that particular speech. So, if you're worried about uh, Soiling your ears, you might want to uh, shuffle off the coil uh, a little bit later in the program. But anyway, it's all new, it's all happening, and uh, 
all all important stuff. Now, before we move on to the program, there's a couple of pieces of news. The uh, we've been reporting on the refugee hunger strike out at Mita in Broad Meadows, uh, the uh, centre uh, uh, at the detention centre there. Uh, it, the group of mostly Iranian detainees had gone on a hunger strike and had been doing it for 17 days until they were became so ill that uh, it was stopped uh, reluctantly on Saturday. Uh, the... Um, the group of mostly Iranian refugees were protesting against conditions in the centre and wanted to be released in the community, and they reluctantly stopped, they said. Um, most of the refugees were transferred from Nauru or Manus Island to Australia on medical grounds and have been approved for resettlement in the US or Canada. Now, they've actually been released into the community while awaiting resettlement. Um, the Anyway, we'll hear more about what's going on there. Uh, it's not finished. It's not over. And as uh, the uh, one of the refugees said, uh, why can't we receive the same support to be free as the other 100 Medivac refugees? Uh, and yes, he would actually have to uh, expect a proper answer from our government. Uh, Frontline Action on Coal, who have been the uh, vanguard in the vanguard of keeping an eye on what's going on at the Galilee Basin, uh, where Adani is uh, actively uh, attempting... Um, environmental vandalism as it looks for coal. Uh, activists, uh, this is uh, from July the 8th, which is uh, two days ago, Thursday. Activists stop work on Adani's rail line to send a message to investors. Climate activists have disrupted work on Adani's Bravas rail construction this morning. That was July the 8th, Thursday. And this is from the Frontline Action on Coal People. Uh, drawing attention to the role of global banking institutions in financing Adani's Carmichael Coal Project. Just days after Adani announced it had struck coal for the first time in the Galilee Basin, um, Owen O'Reilly, Siobhan Nalen and Claudia Lang blocked traffic moving up and down the Carmichael Rail Corridor in protest of the project, which they say could be a cli- would be a climate disaster. No could be about it. While their primary aim was to disrupt Adani's construction of its railway line, the activists were also highlighting the role of Japanese bank MUFG in financing the Adani Group. They are calling on MUFG to rule out any further investments in the Adani Group while the company continues operations on its Carmichael mine. Mr O'Reilly, a pharmacist, said Adani's mine will greatly accelerate climate change, including the risk to our communities of worsening natural disasters like bushfires. MUFG's investment in the Adani Group allows Adani to continue construction of the climate-wrecking Carmichael mine. This project is completely at odds with MUFG's Carmichael 
neutrality declaration in which they claim to be supporting the smooth transition to a decarbonised society, which was in inverted commas. So that's obviously what they'd written in their prospectus. LIMUFG has been the subject of protest across Australia and Japan in the last fortnight. Climate action groups have been calling on the company to stop funding the climate crisis through their investments in the Adani Group and other companies engaged in fossil fuel extraction. Claudia Lang, who is a farmer, highlighted another aspect of the protest. It's currently NAIDOC week and the theme is Heal Country. This means caring for country for future generations, not destroying the landscape with coal mines and desecrating sacred sites in the process. The traditional owners of this land have said no to this mine and Adani needs to respect that. You are on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, just a little announcement. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. And if you were wondering if they are still there, they are. And I've been past uh, that uh, site several times recently and uh, a number of people, uh, are stalwarts, are still maintaining um, vigil on that particular place. So the refugees are still there. They're still kept in this hotel right in the heart of Melbourne City. Um, so you can, um, if you want to, go down there with a the thermos and keep them uh, warm because uh, those uh, people holding placards and blowing whistles, uh, it's uh, very cold these nights and so they uh, should be honoured um, with uh, attentions from others. Um, and, of course, people should be aware of the uh, Medivac uh, refugees who are being held there in at the top floors of the Park Hotel in Melbourne. Um, I went down to the uh, Vic Market on Saturday where the Rally for Peace, No War with China, was happening. And there were a couple of things before I uh, sh- play you some excerpts from that event. Uh, first up, they were going to uh, uh, set up at near the car park, um, you know, you might know uh, Vic Market. It was between uh, the uh, amenities block and uh, near the um, uh, car park because there was some uh, seats and a uh, overhang, uh, you know, a uh, you know a roof type thing to protect you from the weather. Um, anyway, they were uh, two two uh, fellows came up in uh, fluoro vests and said, "Oh no, you can't sit up here." Um, this is uh, political and this is, uh, you can't have something like this on uh, the, uh, and as I was, it's not 
it's not public land. No, it's uh, controlled by the Melbourne City Council. So when uh, they persuaded them that it was uh, not not a terrible thing, uh, um, um, the two uh, Indian workers went off and got their uh, fellow who was in charge of the situation, who wasn't wearing a fluoro vest, but was actually a uh, Anglo guy, uh, younger, uh, came along and told uh, everybody that he was in charge and no, they couldn't possibly sit up there and uh, talk about uh, things like this to the public and hand out pamphlets on um, land that was being uh, organised. auspiced by the uh, Melbourne City Council, they had to go to the corner, onto the uh, footpath uh, at the corner of Elizabeth and uh, Victoria Street, which is windy, but um, not not a bad location because it meant that the uh, various cars going past could see their placards because they were armed with placards. But it was an interesting sort of contretemps, really, uh, that the... Uh, a footpath became uh, not Melbourne City Council responsibility. <laughs> and so we moved on to the issue of no war and peace. Uh, and uh, during the uh, fairly long period of time when there were quite a lot of speeches, there were three interruptions by the uh, people walking past. Three uh, three men um, protested against the protesters. One of them, a younger fellow, walked uh, quickly past saying... Um, the US have always been with us uh, during all wars and so he was obviously aggrieved and someone else walked up very close to one of the speakers and obviously said something rude to them and walked away swiftly and then a third uh, just sort of uh, careered into the group and so obviously there's uh, some sort of uh, sense of aggrievement when it comes to protesting for peace which is sort of is a, a strange idea. But, of course, peace, peace activists know this is the case, that it's obviously one of the most undermining concepts to actually protest for peace, which I found really interesting to observe. But what was running through my mind was that the people who actually attacked the protesters for protesting were the people who would be most likely gathered up and having to go off to war. They were the right age, they were the right sex, and uh, the people who were protesting generally were a lot older and a bit more considered and were a variety of ages, you know, uh, sexual orientation. So uh, it seemed really interesting that uh, the people who were going to be most affected by the barbarity of war were the ones who seemed to be... uh, less able to express concern for their own future. (laughs) It was very interesting. Anyway, first up, there was a speaker. Uh, We're going to kick off with William Briggs. He's from IPAN. That's the independent um, peace um, Australia network. So uh, they were one of the auspicing organisations for this particular event. Just to begin with a word of truth, there is no threat from China. Now the United States may say that, our Australian government may echo that, our media may stir up as much ill feeling as they wish, but there is no threat from China. Now how did we get here? Just seven years ago, Xi Jinping 
was speaking in the Australian Parliament and we were all saying the same thing. We wanted good relationships and good trade. Today, just 16% of the Australian people have any belief that China will act responsibly in the world and 90% of the Australian population are concerned about Chinese military activity. China has become the public enemy number one in the world. Why? How did this happen? Why is war being spoken of in governments all over the world when China has not been a threat in the past and in the present? It is certainly not an issue of ideology. It is certainly not an issue that China is some sort of expansionist power. It never has been, and it is unlikely to become one. What has happened is that China has become a better economic manager than many other capitalist powers. When Mao came to power in 1949, China was not perceived to be a threat. Well, the United States made all the right noises, but it was no conceivable threat. Great leaps forward came and went. Cultural revolutions came and went. The Cold War simmered all over the world, but China was not perceived to be a danger. And something significant happened. The 1970s happened. A capitalist economic crisis happened and profitability crumbled. Economies all over the world sought a way out of this crisis and by doing so, they moved production offshore, which was a fortunate accident for China because they were in the process of opening up to the West. China was not a threat then. It was seen as the savior of economies. It was the workshop for the world. It became a boom economy. It learned its lessons well, and it became a threat to the United States economic power. It learned to become better at capitalism than the United States. That challenge has now been met by the United States. The United States refuses to accept the laws of political and economic gravity. They believe that they can rise and stay risen and not fall. And heaven help anybody who stands in the way of that truth. Destruction will follow. The United States are now in the process of producing and deploying low-yield nuclear weapons. They are talking openly of winnable nuclear war. And just recently they launched what is called the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. This is a system of placing nuke, uh, missile barrages, possibly nuclear tipped, on Okinawa, in the Philippines, and significantly on Taiwan. China, not surprisingly, is a little anxious about such a, such a measure. These missiles are two or three minutes flying time from heavily populated civilian areas in China. In 1979, the United States severed all relationships with Taiwan, recognizing the sovereignty of China over that island. And now, when they did that, they promised to arm and defend Taiwan in, in the event of conflict. But I ask you, if putting 
missile barrages on that island of Taiwan is not actually promoting conflict, I don't know. The media, as I said earlier, have been doing their part and magnificently. They have become the great soulers on towards this next possible war. They have stirred up animosities and fears where there were none. And after all, a lie told well and told often enough can be believed. Question for you all to consider. If we were to go looking today to find the Chinese Army, Navy and Air Force, where might we find them? In China. If we were to look for 60% of the total US naval and air force capacity, where might we find that? Just off the border of China. And yet China is perceived to be the threat. I would ask another question. If we were to scour our way through Mexico looking for Chinese missile barrages ready to destroy the good people of Florida, we would be hard pressed to find them. By the same token, if we went to Canada to look for those same Chinese barrages ready to lay waste to the northeast cities of the United States, we wouldn't find them. But there they lie now on Taiwan, two or three minutes striking distance of populated areas like Shanghai and Beijing. China does have certain defensive capacities. Its power is real. Its military capacity is real. And so is its fear of the United States threat real. And yes, in, to finish up with, yes, there is a threat to peace. There is a threat to economic security. And my friends, I think we all know exactly where that threat comes from. No to war with China no to subservience to the United States. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now, our next speaker is from the Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church, Margaret Williamson. Margaret's had a long experience uh, with the trade union movement. She was secretary of the Bendigo Trades and Labor Council. She's been involved with the um, uh, environmental movement in, in Gippsland and also with the Melbourne Unitarian Church. So over to you, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. And can you please give me a nudge when my five minutes is up? Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Wurundjeri land and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The Melbourne Unitarian Church has had a consistent policy for a long time now uh, of peace taking a stand against wars of oppression and by the might of capitalism uh, over innocent people in vulnerable countries. Today I'd like to have a talk to you about lobbyists, the, the true warmongers, the people that make profit out of war and the people that make profit out of warmongering. And, and I'd just like to start talking to you about Christopher Pine, who you will all remember, who a few months ago stood in great doctoral regalia at the University of South Australia and announced to this nation that within five to 10 years, 
we would be at war with China. He did this really blithely. It was just, we will be at war. You know, as if he was saying, the next day will be Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, clearly this is a fellow who's either not studied war or not studied history and has not seen what happened to vulnerable people in two world wars, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Yemen now. You know, <coughs> sorry, I hope you didn't hear that on the mic, but anyway, I'll keep going. Um, so this, this is a fellow who, um, who maybe has had or not seen the repercussions of war uh, as, as I have in my own family. And I must say, I have a vested interest in this today because Bert and I share two of the loveliest Aussie Chinese grandchildren. We don't want war with China and neither do they and neither do their relatives in one Chow province. Now Christopher Pine jumped out of Parliament, out of his ministerial position, having been paid his very large pension as a minister and he jumped straight into a consultancy company, and which he runs with his former chief of staff. And in fact, if you have a good look at it, you find that that company was set up while he was still a minister. So there he was being paid heaps by the people of Australia and also setting up a company, which now has a principle of this. We specialise in knowing the right levers to pull to clear obstacles that often lie between intent and delivery when it comes to de the dealings of business and government. In his case, he's talking about armaments manufacturing. So Christopher Pine is now doing a lot of work for what used to be called Ernst and Young. They now call themselves They now call themselves EY. You know, it's that abbreviation that you get from large companies these days that they sort of want to hide behind. So EY, or Ernst & Young, I think I'll call it, their records show that in the last few years, in the past four years, in fact, they have won 838 contracts worth 377 million. And that includes 138 contracts with the Defence Department. That's worth 148 million. It would have been great if that had been spent on schools and hospitals and public housing. And in relation to Ernst & Young, when questioned, Christopher Pine said, I'm looking forward to providing strategic advice to them as the firm looks to place itself in the defence industry. Journalist Michelle Fay, writing for Michael West Media, pointed out a disturbing number of Australian military personnel, senior defence and intelligence officials and politicians leave their public service jobs and walk straight into roles with weapons making and security related corporations. Nowhere is government and industry more fused than in defence. Yet in another instance last year, the Director General of ASIO, a fellow called Major General, um, and I can't see his name here because I'm shaking too much and I'm sorry, it's not just nerves, I'm also cold. Um, 
he, he actually left ASIO and went to work for a company called Talis. Now Talis is a French multinational munitions company. It makes war weapons. And so this major general became a major asset for the Talis's business with the Australian government. So while we're contemplating being at war with China and listening to the nightly and daily issues raised in the media about China's human rights record, I think that we should contemplate the old adage that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And let's have a look at our own human rights here in Australia. And I don't like having to own it, but after all, we are Australians. But let's have a look at our relationships with our First Nations people, with refugees, with asylum seekers, with the homeless, with the poor. But also, let's have a look at the relationships with armaments manufacturers. Take a company called Electro-Optic Systems. They actually get paid a government subsidy to make weapons and then sell them to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. And the United Nations have actually asked the countries of the world not to give weapons to those two countries because of the war in Yemen, because of the horrendous pain and suffering of the people of Yemen. But our country, we subsidise this company to do that. Look, there's a conflict here. There's a big conflict with the need for good paying jobs in manufacturing for our workers. For our workers have actually been denied decent jobs and decent wages by this government. And herein lies a conflict. But wouldn't it be better if we were not in the production of weapons of war that caused destruction? Wouldn't it be better if we were transitioning to alternative sustainable energy and growth instead of destruction? Jobs in the interests of the whole community rather than those that advantage the warmongers. We recognise those same companies here in Australia and they're burrowing mightily into our community. The BAEs and the Lockheed Martins and Talis, they're burrowing into our communities, they're funding universities, even some secondary schools are getting funding for engineering and STEM projects, all to try and convince the community that they're the good guys when they're not the good guys at all. So, what we need to do, <coughs> we need to out these companies. We need to talk about them, we need to publicise them and we need to tell the people of this country that these are the warmongers these are the people who have an advantage in promoting war with China. These despicable people. These are people where their greed for profit gets into being evil. When evil meets greed, it's with these warmongers. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Yes, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Uh, and uh, we're going to move on to uh, a, 
an event that's a, a film called Cry the Trees. It's uh, actually uh, an interview I did with Jane Hammond. She's uh, a, a, It's a film about the southwest of Western Australia near Margaret River and uh, it's a film that's going to be shown at the uh, docu- Melbourne Documentary Film Festival uh, and I thought you'd be interested in um, what... Uh, uh, Jane has to say because uh, being on this side of uh, Australia, we often um, overlook the uh, important things that are going on in other states. Here we go. It was an absolutely fascinating film to me because, of course, I'm in Victoria and uh, it is fascinating to find out what's happening to old growth forests in Western Australia. Can you tell me about how this film came about? Yeah, in, in 2019, the West Australian Forest Alliance approached me to do some celebrity interviews with people like uh, Luke Longley and John Butler and uh, Sabrina Hahn, um, the former Premier Carmen Lawrence and, and some others, Ben Elton. Um, and while I was doing those, I, I came across two, two of the celebrities were the local custodians, um, Wayne and Zach Webb, uh, who um, traditional owners or custodians of of the forest areas and I spent a couple of hours with them in the forest and yeah was just absolutely blown away um, and you know realized that there's a much bigger story here sorry yeah like many many people I thought we had solved our forest issue in the early 2000s when we had the election of the Labor uh, Gallup government that came in on a promise to protect old growth forests which had been the battle at the time and uh, to, to my horror this had not been solved um, by, you know, way, uh, as late as 2019. Um, and, I, you know, I, I became involved in forest issues when I was 14 because of the clear felling in the Cary Forest. And, and that sort of had, uh, you know, that, that's followed me my whole life, really, in terms of environmental activism. So to find out uh, all these years later that we still had this massive issue happening was, was a real shock. And, and I thought, look, if if I don't know this, the chances are that there are many others who, you know, love the forest and, and are unaware of the extent of, of the ongoing damage. And uh, to bring into perspective uh, for people on this side of the country, Cary Forests and Jarrah Forests, they're the only place where, where you are in uh, southwest uh, Western Australia are the only locations for these trees in the world. Absolutely. I mean, this is the southwest of Western Australia is a one of the top biodiversity hotspots in the world. It's one of 36 um, given that title of, of, of um, biodiversity hotspot. Um, and we've lost so much of that vegetation, about 90% since white settlement in the whole southwest region. And just in a, in a tiny pocket, we have our Jarrah and Cary forests and they're magnificent forests. Um, and yet we're cutting them down for wood chips charcoal and firewood, useless, you know, um, uh, products that are of very low value and go up in smoke. Yeah, also it was fascinating the way you uh, show, uh, uh, bring out the um, information uh, as to why this incredible resource is being uh, frittered away. The idea that one stump and, uh, you know, that a, a, a tree knocked down sort of 100 years before or having a bit of dryback will actually disallow a section to be covered by the old growth uh, prohibition. 
that that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And really, we've we've moved past you know two decades on. We've we've passed that old growth um, protection status. We we now need to um, basically protect and preserve everything that we have left because there's so little left, and it, it's just it's just such a waste. One of the strong points of your uh, film uh, is the. Uh, placing one economic, uh, if you're going to be only focused on the economic values of old growth forests of this sort, how um, other industries are being impinged by this recklessness. This was quite fascinating. Absolutely. When we, when we look at the value that a beekeeping industry can get off an area of forest and how it can repeat that, that value over many years versus the, you know, the $30 a tonne that we get from uh, or um, knocking down our uh, jarrah forests and carry forests, that um, the waste is is just absolutely mind-blowing. And in a climate emergency, when these forests draw down and store so much carbon, it's absolute and utter madness that we're still doing this. And it's not just old growth. Uh, you know, I've really, we're at that stage where absolutely everything needs to be um, protected, we need to be. We need to stop logging our native forests. Well, it's interesting the uh, groups of people that are actually brought together that you actually document. So you've got uh, uh, people who are, you know, old growth grannies and nanas for native forests, getting up at two a.m. in the morning to defend the forests, and you've got a beekeeper who's talking about waiting for the bloom of the carry forests and the a billion dollars that his industry is actually part of fighting together and a farmer who's looking at the uh, actual economics of the forest products commission which is supposed to actually be looking after the um, asset uh, you've got this really interesting group of people who are, are working to try and raise this issue yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is an issue that really crosses all demographics and um, and all groups of other you know economic uh, businesses. It's something that West Australians absolutely love. You know, they love their forests, they love their southwest, and the areas around Margaret River are iconic. They're uh, known around the world for this beauty, and yet a few minutes out of the town, the bulldozers are just smashing this precious resource to pieces um, and for, for, for what? You know, uh, a loss-making timber industry that turns our forest literally into charcoal. Um, yeah, it's, it's like you couldn't write this in a bad piece of fiction. You wouldn't believe that, you know, it wouldn't be a credible story in, a, in, in fiction. But this, this, this is really going on and, and we're losing it at the rate. We're losing these forests at the rate of 10 football fields every single day. The um, most interesting thing about this is that it's actually a government-run commission, the, uh, the Forest Products Commission, um, and it's actually setting itself up, the policies are actually setting itself up against the uh, uh, forest industries that are plantations and farmers who have actually set aside land uh, to uh, for plantation growth. Uh, they're actually setting themselves up against that other um, pr process of 
providing uh, wood for forestry industries. Is there any explanation coming from the government for this high-handed and uneconomic approach? Look, I didn't directly ask the government to justify itself. I, I, um, but we have not been able to get a clear answer in the in you know in the in the months since the film came out and in the campaign that has been going on for decades as to why this industry continues. And whenever anybody sees the film, the first thing they ask is, "How is this even happening? How is this wasteful industry allowed to continue?" And nobody really has an answer for that. I mean, it does employ. Uh, you know, between three and 500 people in native forest logging, but the, that's, the timber industry um, employs a lot more in plantation forestry. Uh, but we, you know, the best estimates that the industry can give us is up to 500. Uh, but you know, it's, it's probably sitting more at like direct employment around 300. Now, a few months ago in Western Australia, we had Woodside Energy just at the flick of a pen. Uh, sacked 300 workers and it was a story for half a day. Um, now, I, I don't think anyone should lose their jobs. I, I, I would, you know, in the campaign itself with the Forest, WA Forest Alliance, uh, everyone wants a fair transition. Everyone wants people, these people who are doing this in the forest, that, that they have the right to have a job, but we can, you know, transition those skills that they have and they're, you know, they're, they're valuable skills into plantation forestry and into the, um, the, the wood that's already growing, the trees that are already go growing on uh, farmland. We, you know, we see in the film the plantations that uh, these farmers have invested in over many, many years uh, of the valuable timber that actually is not really that sellable when compared to the free wood that the industry gets uh, from our native forests. So so it's really it's really about uh, this idea that um, that a natural resource uh, can be exploited without understanding the bigger issues of environment, uh, species preservation, and even the economic issues of uh, local communities who are moving have moved to um, ecotourism. Yep, yep, that's right. I mean, we had a um, earlier this year. We had a major um, tim um, major concert with John Butler, and we screened the film to a thousand people in uh, the Manjimup uh, sound shell. Now, Manjimup was a major timber town, and you know, it, a couple of decades ago, anybody who looked remotely green would have been beaten up for walking down the street. And here we have a thousand people, locals, most of them. Uh, enjoying a John Butler concert and celebrating the film um, and, and the, the move forward out of this anachronistic um, industry and into the new, um, you know, the new age of let's, let's make these forests valuable for the ecotourism that they have. Let's make them valuable for the carbon that they store um, and, and let's and the air that they clean and the rivers that run through them that they that they feed if we could do if we could change our priorities and and put the value on those um, newer and and more sustainable industries everybody would be a lot better off 
Hello everyone, uh, my name is John Butler and I'm really happy and proud and honored and feel very privileged to be part of this One Earth Live Festival. I am here on Wadandi country in Western Australia, in the southwest of Western Australia and I'd like to pay respects to uh, the indigenous custodians of this land uh, and the elders, both uh, past, present and emerging and also give big props to all the people of the world, and if you're in a colonized, occupied territory, then respect to your elders and to your people and to uh, the, the traditional custodians and the story keepers and water keepers, and land keepers and culture keepers of the land that you're, you're on. We call it Buja here. Buja means country, and this is Wardandi Buja. And so, uh, wherever the Buja is that you're on, I hope. Uh, Hope you're safe and you're well in these these very interesting times that we live in. Very interesting times. And as all things, things come and they go. Like the seasons. night and day. Sun and moon.
Maybe they were glimmer of hope Maybe it's just a mirage Cause you never know Maybe things have changed Storm clouds plastic team listener when well I wrote a week that was for last week thinking my phone would be working yet thanks to NBN it took another week but sloth and procrastination set in and I thought why waste a script so this is the weeks that were but also shows not much changes anyway thus big supremo scuttled them more late son aka scummo he's minister for stuffing up the COVID response Greg Haunt the sick and the team told us they were doing such a magnificent job vaccinating the country that they were now able to allow those susceptible to getting blood clots to get blood clots it's a kinder and faster death than COVID but they pointed out it was up to the individual to make the choice the the caring business class party believes in freedom of choice and as individuals we have chosen to blame everyone else and Scubbo and Greg and the team attacked those who suggested the vaccination rollout was a shambles, assuring us the blame lay with those criticising them, these people diverting attention from the fact they had stuffed up the rollout by not having the vaccines they wanted. Uh, that's the vaccines for which you're responsible, Greg. That is rubbish. Greg looked very angry. They want to vaccinate people, and clearly they're responsible. It's up to them to ensure they have adequate supplies. Uh, which you don't give them. Don't interrupt so rudely. Let me finish. It's up to them, and by not having adequate supplies, they are dodging their responsibilities. Greg displayed his impeccable logic. When the pejorative Dan government locked down Melbourne recently, we asked Scuttle them, you said they were destroying the economy and totally irresponsible and should have followed the lead of your very close friend, Gladys Berridge-Lockermin in New South Wales. Uh, yes, totally irresponsible, an attack on mums and dads, small businesses and jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, but Gladys has locked down Sydney. Yes, and it's important to realise we're all in this together. I'm sure Scummo has prayed ardently for God to make COVID go away, so I wonder what that says about the value of prayer and the dear baby Jesus. Speaking of resurrection, mention Scuttle them, Greg and the team. Well, the teams had a few changes, and what a boon for the week that was, and satire generally, the resurrection of Barnacle. After they descended into the depths to one of those submarines they complain about and scraped him off the bottom, the deposed Michael McNoe comeback told Parliament a few days earlier he wished a plague of mice would attack, would bite their children, run rampant in their beds at night, eat their food and overrun the big city trendies who oppose real progress like coal mines and dry riverbeds.
Ironic, really, because within days, Michael himself ran into a plague of rats. Nothing to do with Barnacle, of course. He, he just popped into a hayseed and sheepshit party meeting and popped out as the new leader. Such is his spectacular popularity. The changes were such they made the Minister for Fossils and beautiful Cole Keith Pit Pony almost look good, as the also resurrected Bridget over troubled waters declared the environment didn't need any water. What a waste she displayed her ministerial qualities, just flowing down the river system doing nothing for the economy, unlike the great agricultural and pastoral and resource industries who understand the true value of water. I reckon even Scummer would be praying that Barnacle and that lot could also go away. This week, as in this week, listener, well, remember a few weeks ago we reported Keith Pitpony had vetoed a proposal by the Northern Trulawasi Development Fund to support a renewable farm, Keith telling us wind and solar were now mature enough to develop without government assistance. Well, this week Keith announced he was funding a multi-billion dollar coal mine, explaining how it was good for all of us, jobs, profit and all that, so obviously coal is not yet mature enough to survive with Without government funding. And as I said, Barnacle Bridget and the team almost made Keith look good. Water. When it rains, it pours, doesn't it? So spare a thought for poor old AG hell to the planet, creating some sort of record earlier this year by having an environment effects hearing actually knock back its proposal to operate a floating gas import terminal at Crib Point on Western Port Bay. After all, EESs are generally predetermined, a, a facade to allow the developer stroke polluter to develop and pollute at it, her, his heart's content. Knocked back, outrageous, even though AG held to the planet and its very credible experts assured the thousands of objectors flushing recycling hot residue into the bay day and night would have no effect on the ecology, no effect on the environment at all, or, as they all say, the environmental impact will be minimal knocked back, unable to provide us with all that lovely imported gas, which on the high seas would have passed the lovely gas we export all over the world going the other way. Nothing but logical, the greatest little economic order of them all. And now, oh it gets worse about that time, AG held to the planet decided to demerge to bundle cleaner stuff, the greenwash stuff, into a company still carrying the AG Hell 2 name and a second company with all the polluting coal mines and power plants and the nasty stuff with no mention of AG Hell 2 in the new title, Axel. Harmless, benign Axel. Running delightful entities like Loy Yang, True Blue Aussie's biggest polluter. Perhaps Axel is short for Axel rating climate change, if there is such a thing. Well, the bloody market investors have seen the company values flash just because they think, and let me say I don't want to have a bad word against the market, which we all admire, just because they think coal mines and nasty stuff aren't quite as popular as Barnacle and his team of fossils assert. So spare a thought for poor AG Helltu, the poor shareholders. As I said, it never rains but it pours, most of which, of course, is down to AG Helltu's long-term contribution to the environment.
Nonetheless, it wasn't all bad news from the market, and obviously good news for lazy avaricious workers with the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline, P1 Thursday week. Market delivers thumping returns in best years since roaring 1980s. True Blue Aussie shares have posted their best financial year in more than three decades, delivering thundering returns for investors that recall the go-go days of Wall Street and sending the market value of blue chips beyond $2 trillion for the first time. Isn't that the most exciting news we've heard for well, for three decades, at last, the end of slow wages growth. I imagine the generous shareholders enjoying their windfall will be contacting their, their boardrooms, celebrating the chance to end slow wages growth. At last, the time is right for a wage rise. Sadly, unfortunately, bad news, listener, the time is not right. A selfish wage claim now would stifle the recovery, place a crippling burden on the poor caring employers and sour their celebrations of their windfall, confirmed for us by the Chamber of Profits, Rick Bloated. The problem, as Rick pointed out, is that workers must increase their productivity if they want an end to slow wages growth. Uh, yes, where have these windfall two trillion dividends come from, Rick? From the markets, from the dedicated work of the caring business class. Uh, what about those who work for the caring business class? What about them? If they got off their bums and lifted their productivity instead of complaining about slow wages growth, they'd be a lot better off. They're so selfish because they cause us to lose so much sleep worrying about slow wages growth and how we can address it. The shareholders are not sitting on their bums, Rick. They are the doers, the lifters in this society who take all the risks. Uh, what, like being injured or killed at work? They take the real risks. We decided it would be a waste of time to ask Rick how come with many caring employers complaining about the difficulty in finding staff that that great tenet, the laws of supply and demand, the market, don't work for wages. It would have distressed him too much. Interesting little by the by listener, a week before the $2 trillion shareholder windfall story, the same paper informed us total federal and state government debt had reached $2 trillion. Just thought I'd mention that. Indeed, more trouble for caring employers generally as the state government made underpaying workers a criminal offence, leading the Chamber of Profits to complain quite rightly that this is yet another barrier in the path of the caring business class going about its business. A barrier, we asked. Well, yes, obviously it will make it much more difficult to underpay workers, which is always inadvertent. Always. See the man who bought us the oh-so-successful coalition of the killing invasions in Iraq and Afghanistan, Donald Rumsfeld the Arabs, went to the great battlefield in the sky, meaning now he'll never know what he didn't know. Donald was so surprised that they couldn't find any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq because, in an earlier life, he had sold them to them. In the US of, former big supremo Donald Trample the Poor's famous modesty was on display again when he told us the book he was writing, which would explain why he didn't lose the election he lost, would be the book of all books, the greatest book ever, ever. 
the book he is writing? Maybe. His previous tome, something about making fortunes, was actually penned by a ghostwriter, but okay, maybe he is writing it. One problem is all respectable publishers have so far refused to have anything to do with it. Something about credibility. Wonder why? Self-published, Donald. The greatest self-published ever, ever. Finally, what an appropriate way to celebrate NADOC week that a proud Indigenous young woman will contest the Wimbledon final tonight. We're always expected to barrack for the true Blue Aussie in these situations, even if their opponents stroke opponents might be far more likeable or decent human beings, but I'm sure in Ash Barty's case, we'll all be barracking for her. And of course, the previous local woman to win on the Wimbledon grass was also Indigenous. Suddenly, just check the Lord Rupert of Wapping tabloid stable. Suddenly, terra nullius, non-land, non-people are applauded as, accepted as, real true blue Aussies. Good morning. Yes, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. It's great to hear Kevin talking to us again. And uh, he's right. Uh, the news wasn't old. <laughs> Which is a bit peculiar. And uh, yes, we will be barracking for Ashbarty. What a delightful person she is. And uh, we have to hurry along because I've got lots of stuff here. But it's the MUA rally that they had on Friday. This is the rally at uh, Karinga Way down in Port Melbourne. Uh, It it all started with uh, Switzer, which is the the largest towage company in uh, in Australia, and uh, which is uh, part of a um, bigger company, which is the biggest uh, shipping company and uh, logistics company in the world, who have who uh, anyway. I'll let them tell you what happened and why they're all in a flutter and why this is going to be a really big dispute. Uh, the um, last part of this is Christy uh, Kane, who's the new CFME. CFMMEU uh, National Secretary and uh, he he uh, does a few expletives so if you're worried about expletives then uh, cover your ears uh, but it all happened yesterday, Friday down at uh, WebDoc. Can you tell me uh, what happened down at Stitzer? Geelong. Geelong, yeah well they changed everything and got rid of the uh, the local boys out of the the MUA local boys out of the workforce and uh, made us force redundant four days before Christmas last year and and now they've brought in um, virtual non-union labour, scab labour and after they said they were leaving the port because it wasn't viable anymore and um, six months later they've started up again. When it happened four days before Christmas, uh, what were, what did they say to you? That the port wasn't viable anymore, they're losing too much money and they can't compete with the other mob that's down there which is another non-union outfit. And um, they forced redundant all of us, 17 local blokes out of the workforce. Yeah, so, so did they, how did they do it? Did, did they do it by email? Did they actually front you? Oh, no, we had meetings with them. It was an ongoing process for quite some time, probably close on the three-month mark. I mean, it was always whispers a little bit before that, but uh, at the three-month three mark, they started initiating their, their so-called consultation meetings, which were, as we now know, a, a crock. Um, the ultimate uh, ambition for them was just to get rid of the union labour force out of there and uh, and start up again with a non-union labour force. Did they give you redundancy? Yeah, it was all forced redundancy. A lot of us, there was 
a few blokes that were uh, like in the uh, the upstairs and the downstairs mob, a few boys that were a bit older and were ready to go, but there was you know five or six of us that really need to keep working. I mean, I've got young kids in school and and a young family to raise, and um, yeah, I mean it took me a long time to get in down there. I'd, I'd worked away for 19 years, and um, yeah, I was only there for six years, and they ripped it away from me. So it's been a, it's been a lot of pressure on me and the family um, having to go back to sea, but. Um, you know, force redundant. They wouldn't even transfer us up here to Melbourne because they just wanted us gone. They just they had an ultimate plan and they were sticking to it. This business, um, so you've got a, a good experience of the stresses that come from working away because a lot of people in the country, they uh, someone has to work away in order to maintain the uh, family unit, don't they? They do. And um, as I said, I, I did 19 years in the offshore doing a, like a five-week on, five-week off swing. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty hard on my wife. Um, and then, you know, obviously, with the young children, I uh, had to come back home uh, and managed to get back home and actually working in my home port, because I'm born and bred in Geelong. Um, it, was, it was seen as, you know, that was the, the ultimate solution and, and it was working really well. And, and then these fits of snakes took it away from us. Can, can we look at this business about bringing in um, uh, fly-in, fly-out people to a community? I mean, it's not like Geelong, it's a... Um, a small place. I mean, it's got a lot of history. In fact, it's probably got a bit a longer history than Melbourne in some ways. Um, how do the people feel about having to support a company that actually doesn't support you? Well, that's what the rally was all about the other day—to let the local people know that you know, the, the community shouldn't be putting up with what this uh, international conglomerate of Spitzer are doing to, to the local workforce. Uh, Seventeen local blokes forced redundant, out of a job, and now they're started up again with um, fly-in, fly-out labour. Uh, most of these guys are from the West, apparently. So, you know, it doesn't make much sense. So they themselves are having to work away from home and their families are in the same position as your families? Pretty much, yeah. But, um, you know, they're not working under the same conditions either. So it's, um, yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know how they're doing it. I really don't know how they're doing it. Also, you weren't asking for very much, were you? You were asking for fair pay, fair, uh, fair wages, fair... I mean, you, you're not greedy lot. We had six crews down there, three guys in each crew, which is a total of 18 blokes. And our last-minute uh, offer to Spitzer was to go down to two crews, which is not viable. You can't run the port, the two tugs, with just two crews. But we, uh, we offered two crews and a wage reduction, and that was still thrown away. So... I think, uh, I think everyone sort of needs to understand that Spitzer had a bigger picture in mind in regards to getting rid of the union labour force down there. Tells you that the union's important, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be going to sea without them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for There are two reasons we're here today. One of them is to identify and make it known to everyone the plight of the MUA tug crew that work for this mob here. These blokes have gone without a pay rise for over a couple of years. They've endured the hardship of that. They have also been in lots of negotiating meetings with Dave at a national level to get a Spitzer agreement across the line. Now you have heard that this was almost done. There was almost an in-principle agreement two years ago. It was only a matter of a few details that we wouldn't be here today. But for, for some filthy, rotten reason, the company did a backflip, threw the claim, extra claims on claims 
that when they were discussed with the company, the company didn't even know what they meant. It was a deliberate ploy to undermine every worker on this gang. Absolutely appalling. Now, we continue, our union day, the national officials continue to fight for this agreement with, with the boys, the delegates and the crew of the tugs. We haven't finished and this is why we've highlighted this issue by this legal protected action today, a 12-hour stoppage starting at 12 to the night. So, yes, there's going to be a great lot of impact in the Port of Melbourne, absolutely, and I dare say it won't be the last. So, um, further to that, we've just got to remember too, when the company pull these negotiations apart, they throw on extra claims, there's only run one reason for that. It, as I said, undermining what they've got. Now, when you look at what they do, these blokes are working 12-hour shifts, all the unsociable hours, 24-7, 365 days a year, and here's a company, multi-billion dollar company, the parent company is the best, biggest shipper in the, in the world. Now, think about what they're doing to these blokes. It's not good enough. We will continue this fight. The second thing here, the second thing we're here is to expose Spitzer, expose them for what they are, expose them to everyone else. We know what they're like. We need to get this message out to every Australian, every everyone in the everyone in the community, every business. These grubs, now we, we call them snakes. Now there's a reason for that. There's a lot of snakes around here. Now the Port of Melbourne have got a lot of signs around here warning about snakes. I don't think you have to look too far to find where they are. There's a snake pit right behind me full of snakes now. We will expose them for what they are. We're doing that right now with your support. We will continue to do that and we will get through this and we will get a decent agreement for all these hard-working MUA tug crew today. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. Union busting! Union busting! It's disgusting! Union busting! Tough jobs fall on someone's shoulders sometimes, and the next bloke who's coming up to talk is uh, a national official from the MUA. He's responsible for towage in Australia, so he's got a pretty tough job ahead of him. Jamie Newland. Comrades, fellow workers, the previous speakers have identified the struggle we're having with this multinational. This agreement that we've been negotiating has been going on now for the best part of two years. As Shane indicated a few moments ago, we almost had an agreement prior to COVID hitting. Then they claimed COVID ruined their business. They were gonna go broke, particularly in Sydney. They exited the business there. They exited the business in Geelong. And we had this wonderful rally down in Geelong last Monday. And a few of you people were there, which is wonderful. But it's these sneaky deals and arrangements that multinational companies like this do, where they sack their workforce, leave those tugs in Geelong, six months later bring in what they term a service provider, which in fact is just a labour hire company, to do the work that our members did six months before. That is a shame. 
It's actually a disgrace, not a shame. It is a disgrace, comrades, that we need to stand shoulder to shoulder and fight uh, nationally and internationally to, uh, to, to fix. And we will make sure that we end up with an agreement that is satisfactory to our members, that returns members of our union to the tugs in Geelong, to the tugs in Sydney, and around this country where Spitzer operate. It is absolutely vital that we have your support. And I take on Earl's comments. It is our fight, but it's a global struggle. And it's a struggle that we will rely on and call on from time to time, great comrades and fellow sisters and brothers like yourselves. Because it's the collective, it is the union movement. It is that collective struggle and fight that magnifies us a thousandfold that makes sure we will always win. And I can tell you, that struggle to take on Spitzer has been going on for, that, for the past 18 months. We've taken 29 actions around the country. We've brought them back to the table when they refused to meet. When they come back originally, they had 30 additional claims, the dirty 30 that tried to strip back conditions of employment 30 years. The action we've taken so far got them back to the table where we've stripped away 20 of those claims and there's 10 left that we're going to fight for. These guys here and around the country working for Spitzer are not asking for a lot. The maritime industry, we have good jobs. They're strong union jobs and it's not a crime to fight for good jobs. So our union will continue to fight. Christy will talk in a minute about some action that's going to happen. We've had a meeting today and I'll telegraph a few things to Spitzer. The action's on, it's coming and you'll know when. And it will be national. We're applying it nationally. It'll be strategic so they can't take us on. So they can't claim a section 424 economic damage to the country. But it'll be strategic and we will take it in a way that puts pressure on. We're going to go global. We're going to use our global union federation, the ITF, that has a MERS network internationally and start applying some pressure there. There's a meeting next week to deal with that. So comrades, this is a local, national and international struggle. And with that global support, national support and this local support, we will win. Thank you for your solidarity. Solidarity. Fantastic. Thanks, Jamie. Now for the man with the toughest job in the country, the National Secretary of the CFMMEU, Christy Kane. Thanks very much, David. And uh, I want to pay my respects to the uh, elders past and present. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I want to pay my respects to Jacks and to the many Aboriginal people in Melbourne, uh, Snaydock Week around this country, and uh, let's give it a big round of applause for our brothers and sisters. Um, here we go again. But just let me put in perspective and sum up what the union movement is saying here. But the first thing I want to say is 
without the 98 dispute at Patrick's, and it's been spoke about, there would be no war fees working around this country, in my view. Without the trade union movement coming behind them and standing shoulder to shoulder with them, there would be no war fees working as we know it on agreements, what we have today. So I want to thank you again on behalf of the MUA for that dispute. It made us a lot stronger collectively together, and that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about. So I want to thank you all for being here and respect to that. I haven't been involved in this dispute um, as much. Jamie's got carriage of that, and, he's, uh, and uh, a number of other officials around the country. Um, but over the last couple of days, I've started to get involved in it. I suppose when you poke the bear, it comes out, and we need to show what we can actually do. It's not an easy thing, but it's a blue we're going to have to take on. Only not the way they want the blue. We've been two years negotiating, and I want to make it very simple. Two years to negotiate an agreement where our members are not asking for much. They're asking for job security. They're not asking for massive pay rises, changes of rosters, job security. Switzerland, on the other hand, we've given them a leg up all around this country. We've been involved with the government, with the port authorities, to make sure they got into areas around different states, to make sure they had union agreements all around this country. All around this country, there's 104 tugs work for Switzerland. We delivered good jobs, permanent jobs. And for that this time round, Switzerland are no different than Patrick's, no different than DP World, no different than VICT. Switzerland owned, as you heard before, by Maersk. Maersk are the biggest network in the shipping industry in the world. We don't take on small employers, by the way. We love taking the big ones on. You know, if you think about the small union and division we have, We've took on Rio Tinto. We've took on BHP. We've took on fucking Chevron. And many, many, many more unfinished business with the Portland dispute, with Alcoa, where they sack workers and bring in exploitive foreign labour to take Australians' jobs. Well, we've had a good full of it. So I want to say this, and if you can move a little bit closer, everyone a bit closer, and get the flags in the air, because this is going live on video. Back to Switzerland. And one thing I have learned about them all is they don't like a little bit of publicity on the social media. They don't like any criticisms of them earning billions and billions of dollars in the first quarter of this year on the backs of workers. They don't like being exposed. 
for the traitors what they are. And if it takes us here today, I'm going to give you the programme, what we decided. And I'll make it public, because we've got nothing to hide. I'm going to see our members, our brothers and sisters in Melbourne today. And they're going to tell you this. We're not just having a 12-hour dispute. We're here week in, week out, week in, week out, month in, month out, until we fucking win. And so what's happening now? As the National Secretary of this union, or not by the commissions and the ABC staff, fuck them. The ROCs of this world, fuck them as well. I've had a guffle, and so has the union movement. We've been getting sued, we've been getting fined, we've been getting put in jail on stupid allegations. We've been vilified in the construction industry. Why is that? You've got to think about it. Because we're effective. Because we stand up for workers. Because we make sure they go home safe from work. Because they all have union agreements. And we stick together. We stick together. So the programme's this, Mr. Switzer. Next week, in Melbourne. And you tell me if you're going to be with us. Instead of being right here, we're going to pay a visit to fucking Maersk in the city of Melbourne. We're going to go there. We're going to protest. We're going to expose what they're doing and Switzer are doing on the backs of workers. Can you put your hands up if you're coming with us? Let's have a look at that again. Get the flags up in the air. Only this time when we go, we're going to bring a lot more workers with us. We're going to ask every union of the 32 unions in this state to come together as one, to fight as one, to win as one. Strategically, we all win together. Put your hands up and let's hear you say it. I say union, you say. executive this morning and I lost my voice on the building sign losing again but I've got to say this morning we've decided this that from Melbourne here today all bets are off no more talk no more if they want to meet us they're gonna agree to a union agreement they're gonna they're gonna have to put them people Put them people back on them tugs down in fucking Geelong. Get rid, get rid of the scabs off there who undermined the wages and conditions. Put the people in Coolan Island back on them tugs and then we'll start talking business. Then we'll start talking business. And so from here, we go from Melbourne to my own port in Fremantle. We're on Thursday, and the notice has gone in this morning. Thursday from Will Tracy, and next Saturday, 24 hours and 24 hours.
48 hours bubble gym free man. I hope you're listening Schwitzer and you Maersk because we're not going to miss Maersk either. One of the questions in your PIA out of the 10 questions for protected action is this, that all Maersk vessels coming into Australia will be getting a little bit of it as well now. They will be missing their fucking windows because they have put us to task. Every mass ship that comes in Australia will be getting 24, 24 and 20 fucking four. And then we're gonna move on to the coal terminal up in Newcastle. And the reason I say this, we're not going to them smaller ports, Bunbury, Cooling Island, Geelong, bringing it into the city where they can attack us. They've attacked us, and we're gonna fucking attack them. We're gonna give it them. And so now, it's on. We're gonna be moving from port to port to port. From Melbourne to Sydney to Fremantle to the Newcastle Coal Terminals to Adelaide to Port Kembla all around this country, we're in a fucking blue till we get a proper union agreement. Signed off what we deserve. We're gonna fight for it, we're gonna stand for it, and we're gonna fight and win. So in closing, in closing, watch this space, Switzer, Maersk, and any other multinational that wants to jump on the bandwagon. We're here. We've struggled before, we'll struggle again. And let me tell you, I want to thank every trade unionist who has managed to come out here today. Every one of you, I really appreciate when workers unite and come together, we fucking win. We win. web doc and uh, fighting words and uh, the fight is on. It's about job security and it's about uh, attacks on union workforces. Um, anyway, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. We'll probably meet you down at the uh, Mert site in the city next week um, if you're if you game. And uh, coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with a, a rousing version of Which Side Are You On from the Dropkick Murphys.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.